Welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, we have Sky Nelson Isaacs, author of Living in Flow, the science of synchronicity and how your choices shape your world. Sky has a master's degree in physics and has had a diverse career from physics teacher to software engineer and music composer. He has spent the past 20 years studying synchronicity and writing academic articles on the topic. In this episode, Chad and Sky define what synchronicity is, how to use these experiences to reach your full potential, and the role synchronicity has played in ancient cultures for centuries to connect to the spiritual. Welcome to the show, officially. Thank you. I'm excited to be on the show. Likewise. So when people ask, uh, you know, what do you do or what are you excited about? Uh, how are you responding these days? Well, you know, in flow, I mean, n- not to get too academic about just talking about the topic of the book, but I do live my life paying attention to the principles that I write about in the book every day. It's like an exploration for me to understand, well, what does flow really point to? Mm-hmm. And I think it's, what's beautiful about it is that it's a never-ending investigation into who we are as human beings. As we bec- get more into flow with life, it's a never-ending exploration towards greater authenticity. And we never get to the bottom of authenticity. I think we can, the more, the more of our own baggage or conditioning we peel away, the, you know, the more self-knowledge we gain and the more we're able to see our own reactions to things and, and not necessarily react so fast the more authentic we become. But that's not like the end. That's the beginning. That's the point from which we start really showing up in life the way we want to. Right. And then life, everything in life carries a, a sense of adventure or a sense of worthwhile challenge. I mean, a big message in my book is that synchronicity as a process is not a positive p- process. It's not something that happens in a positive way all the time. It's mm-hmm. a neutral process. So a lot of experiences that show up that are synchronistic are difficult. And it's really helpful to start seeing difficult experiences in the light of synchronicity. How is this experience helping me grow in some way or evolve? And from that perspective, I feel like I'm dealing with a lot of challenges in my life. At the same time, I'm dealing with a lot of good stuff. And living in flow is a way of being able to hold both of those at the same time Mm. in a context of of growth and I think healing as a human being that makes me excited at the same time that I'm like, got butterflies in my stomach half the day. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I think when how you described authenticity and that pursuit of it, I think is fascinating because it's pretty intimidating. I'm speaking obviously from you know my own experiences, but also from what I hear from others. And it's almost like an event horizon, right? Where we're scared to approach it because we don't like we don't know what's on the other side of that, right? We might relationships might change, interactions might change, but could be great, could be bad. Um there's a lot of fear when we start talking about authenticity. How do you approach it? And uh, have you dealt with fears before as you move to a place of more authenticity? Or It's interesting that you use those words because fear is something I relate to authenticity or, or vice versa. A lot of times, I, like in my life, I've spent a lot of time trying to understand fear, overcome fear, break through fear. And the perspective I've taken usually is like I'm trying to develop courage you know, mm-hmm. to overcome my fear. But that's coming from this mentality of overcoming. And that's like a personal story that gradually I've come to see, oh yeah, there's this story that's guiding my whole challenge, right. which is perpetuating the challenge in sure. a way of, of fear. And rather than thinking about courage as the way to get around fear, we can think about authenticity as uh-huh. a way to dissolve fear. Because when we are authentic, we naturally... Uh, are able to move through things in ways that w- it would take a huge amount of courage to right. stand up and say something in public or to ask a question in class or whatever. But when it's coming from a place of like, I really want to say this, mm-hmm. and this is what I really believe. The path of least resistance right there, right? It becomes a path of least, of least resistance. Right. And it, it might not look like that at first, but as we get closer to it. Yeah, yeah. Right. If it's coming from a, a deeply authentic place inside, the resistance that comes from for me, often like avoiding shame, avoiding being seen as, you know, a fraud or like not sure. knowing what I'm talking about or awkward or whatever the right. fears are of how I'm going to be perceived. I think authenticity doesn't even have awareness of those fears. Right. It's uh, that's that's a really interesting way of looking at it. So it's um, a way of overcoming fear without any brute force. Right. Right. It's like, you know, a direct attack is rarely the best, <laughs> the best method. Right? right. Yeah. And it's I think it's uh it's a call to be more clever. It's a call to be more patient. 
uh, and maybe it's a great segue to start talking about Lorax and you know breaking down the listen, open, reflect, release, act, and repeat process. Um, yeah, so I would love to hear you kind of talk about that and maybe give us some ideas of how to apply this when we're going through our day and we experience something that is uh, that frustrates us or um, starts to make us worry. Yeah, so uh, like there's a story that comes to mind about that. I was making a move from a city that was in the North Bay um, and my whole family was moving. It was kind of a, a very much a big upheaval of our lives for uh, a certain purpose. And all three of us had some kind of reason to want to do the move, but it was also a difficult leaving our community and moving to the East Bay. And in doing so, we had sold our home and we were looking for a new house. And the East Bay market for housing is really, really tight, really difficult to get into. And um, so one of the things that I did, given my perspective on mm-hmm. how flow works and how to you know, what, build what I call symbolic momentum, this, this building momentum towards this, the experience I want to have, even if I don't know how to get there. Yeah. And trusting that every action I take in that direction builds some momentum. What we're doing is moving along a tree. This tree represents all the different possibilities for how life can unfold. And as we move along that tree, we get closer to certain types of experiences. And if we act towards something we want to experience, like in this case, I was acting towards wanting to have a a safe, comfortable, happy place to live with my family and make this move a success. And so what I did was I acted in alignment with that intention and took, took steps which I figured probably wouldn't work out themselves, but there's, I had a, a trust that along that path somewhere, some kind of synchronicity would show up, which would show me what the next useful step would be. But I had to take a first step and, and get active. So what I did one day, for instance, we, I drove down to the Bay Area from where we were, about an hour and a half away, and dropped my daughter off at my brother's birthday party. Uh, we, the re, one of the reasons we moved down here is because we have family here. And so she was having a great time at the party. And I said, well, this is great, but I'm going to go downtown for about an hour and I'm going to pass out flyers. And I had printed out flyers with my family's description of why we're moving to the East Bay and a picture of us and that, Very we, cool. that we wanted to yeah. lead on a house, you know? Yeah. And so I went to this, we identified a neighborhood that we really liked. You know, it's like, that, I didn't need to live in that neighborhood, but I had to identify some place to start. So this was a, the neighborhood that my wife liked a lot and I thought would be, you know, a nice position close to restaurants and just a good mm-hmm. medium middle of the road spot. And I went to that neighborhood and it's like four streets, each of them like three or four blocks long. And I just walked that whole neighborhood and passed out flyers and handed them, put them under porch um, mats. And in that process, I ended up meeting some folks on the street who wondered what I was doing and thought it was a little <laughs> odd. Like you're never going to find a house that way. I did end up finding one person who was moving and was interested in renting their house. They were going to keep their house, but they wanted to rent it. And their daughter had the same name as mine, my daughter, and was the same age, same birthday. So there was this moment of like, oh, this is meant to be. Sounds like it. (laughs) But in the end, I I got really attached to that. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, this is the house. This is in the neighborhood we want. And their daughter has got the same name. But then we found out they were charging more than we wanted to spend. And I tried to like make it work, tried to fit my agenda onto this situation. And I had to listen to what was going on in the circumstance, which is it wasn't working out. So part of part of the the first step in the Lorax process to, is to listen to the mm-hmm. circumstances and then open your mind is the second step to to see how what is showing up in life is or isn't working and maybe different from how you, you know, your expectations. So I was able to let that go and I was disappointed and I, I felt like, God, you know, this process should work. I should be able to find housing and I, I put in a bunch of effort and this future day we were driving down to the Bay Area. And we're going to go look at a number of houses for sale and kind of discouraged. And on the way, just before we got here, we, we decided, I don't know whose idea it was, but to look at rentals. We hadn't thought about rentals. Great call. And maybe it was an article in the newspaper about the rental market. I don't know. Some, some information came to one of us that we should, we should do that or that it would be useful. And we looked at rentals and we had already signed my daughter up for a school. You know, she was, she had enrolled in a school. So we knew where we were going to be taking her to school. Mm -hmm. And one of the rentals on Craigslist that day was a block away from the school. So we looked at it, like we both looked at each other in the car and like, wait a minute. I could save so much time. This is incredible. <laughs> this is incredible. Yeah. Cause we were looking for a quality of life change where right. instead of driving everywhere on the freeways, we, you know, you save a, just a tremendous, tremendous difference in the quality of life. If you're can walk to school or your work or whatever. And you open yourself up to 
who knows what, right? Yeah, yeah, to synchronicity and, <laughs> yeah, and local definitely. connections. And and so that was the first house we, we went to. We changed our trajectory and went to the house. And, um, you, you know, she liked us and we liked her and we, we jumped on it. And that's where we've been living for the past two years. Well played. So I we got to story, walk to yeah. school. I mean, it just turned into this incredible, beautiful experience. And we love the house. And, yeah. and I think it's important to recognize that this would be a simple process if things worked out perfectly, but things aren't perfect. You know, there were things about the house that made us really have to consider, is this where we want to be? Is this house going to work for us? Is this location going to work for us? It's, it's always a give and take. Right. Well, trade-offs for yeah. everything. <laughs> so in the third step of the process, like first we listened to this circumstance where mm-hmm. we said, we, were, we had an agenda. We were going we to buy a house, but maybe we had to listen. That wasn't working. And here was an opportunity to rent had to open our minds to that possibility and reflect on how this situation might actually benefit us. Mm-hmm. Reflect on the quality of our life six months down the road when we're walking to school with our daughter. And is that, is that a, a good enough payoff for the, the drawback of, of, of not, not being able to buy a house? And uh, once we've reflected, then releasing the attachment to how we thought it was going to go. You know, I thought we were going to buy a house and I, I almost passed up on the rental opportunity because I had an attachment. Yeah. So you got to release that. And then from there, we're in a position where we can make a choice, uh, an informed choice and take an action. So cool. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that story. That's uh, an excellent example of that. And I think that brings us to a subject that we'll probably talk a, a lot about, or maybe maybe not so much, we'll see, is synchronicity. So how do you define synchronicity and uh, how do you think about it? So a synchronicity is a meaningful event, which is meaningful because it leads to a set of experiences we want to have. So synchronicity might not seem meaningful in the moment, but if we look and reflect carefully on it, or we just wait a little while, we'll see that that surprising event actually leads to something we had intended or had in mind. And that's where the consciousness, like the self-awareness comes in, being able to not react to things so fast and be able to reflect on them so that we can see, oh yeah, this person's being an obstacle for me right now at work but it's actually allowing me to rethink my plan in a better way. And so I've become a little more grateful for those obstacles along the way. In the case with the, the house, you know, I put in this effort to what I'm saying, calling building momentum towards an outcome, a set of, set of branches of the tree that I want to reach. And those branches get highlighted by apples. So it's an apple tree metaphor. And the, the apples represent branches on which we find a good housing situation, mm-hmm. but it can look lots of different ways. Yeah. It might look like we have this rental by her school. It might look like we buy a house in Oakland. It might look like we buy a house in a different town or we, we, we live with a friend who's got space or, you know, it's, there's lots of different ways to satisfy the experience I want to have. Mm-hmm. And the key is that synchronicity is a meaningful event, which is responding to the experiences that I'm anticipating, the experiences that I'm not only wanting to have, I'm, I'm feeling what it would feel like to have those experiences and I'm doing something about it. So by walking around the neighborhood, I was actually taking actions that moved me towards those experiences, but it wasn't until an actual apple fell in my lap when we found that rental that the synchronicity occurred. And that's that, that actual opportunity showing up at that moment, a block from my daughter's school was a synchronicity because it led to an experience we wanted to have of of being settled and being really at home and loving our location. So throughout history, there have been many different writers about, you know, many different writers and poets have commented on synchronicity, sometimes without a word for it. At what point in history or psychology did synchronicity become, you know, a conversational phrase? At what point was it accepted as a phenomena that was worth studying? What are the origins of the concept? You know, what, what's amazing about it is, and what draws me to the study of synchronicity is that I think it is a core experience that people associate with spirituality and the divine. Like how is life sh- sending us experiences that we need to have? But we don't have to look at it as necessarily relating to spirituality. We can just see it, as, I think, and I'm trying to work on the science behind it. We can see it as a scientific process. Um, but either way, it's been a part of I think indigenous cultures, a number of indigenous cultures that I know of for throughout history. Sure. Because it's a, it's a basic experience of how events show up in life at the times when you need them. And everybody has experiences of that, whether or not way before science came along, people had experiences like that. And they shamans were training, training the tribe to look for these things. That's right. And they began to associate a personality with the cosmos because it seemed to know what they were wanting or thinking or aiming for. And they felt connected. To, they felt connected. And I mean, that 
basically brings us to i think animism right or mm-hmm. the, the idea that there are uh everything's living like the universe might be living as well and all things might be connected um yeah so well i think of uh the cosmos as a reflection of us uh, the yeah. cosmos is responding to our anticipated experiences to what we want to experience on this earth and what we act towards like not just wanting but actually feeling and sometimes unconsciously mm-hmm. you know we have some condition in our head or programming in our head that makes us act out certain types of behaviors that end up undermining and bringing us synchronicities which undermine us but it's all part of the same process of a reflection of us the yeah. cosmos is responsive and it's like we were talking earlier about fear or any other program that might be whether it's fear or anxiety or any other program or story that's running in your brain uh it might be running at a subconscious level right because you know in our very formative years uh, there's lots of research that show whether you're an infant in the womb or up until seven years of age, we're very, very susceptible to people's moods, what people say, uh, the stimulus in our environment, and that can get embedded in our subconscious. Uh, I'm obviously like simplifying something very complex here, but what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, that's very much my experience. And I have a 10 year old right now. She's almost 10. She'll be 10 in a month. She's a, a girl. And I'm trying to do my own inner work to understand what programs I have from when I was her age and earlier, because the best way I have of not passing on those programs to her is by understanding them myself and healing them myself before I pass them on. And it's, it's a totally uphill battle. You know, I, really notice, I notice every day behaviors that she has. I'm just like, Oh God, that's totally me. And you can kind of trace the origins, yeah. right? Cause like I, I can trace the origins back. Yeah. If I talk to my parents, there's usually like a, a more An pronounced version or, of that story yeah. or something. And if we dig deeper, sure enough, grandma or grandpa went through something right. that was perhaps even worse. And their subconscious programming was, uh, you know, far worse than mine. But you can, I feel like when you trace the roots of the meta program or whatever you want to call it, or story or uh, traumatic experience or whatever it is, it keeps going back further and further right. into your family tree. And no wonder we're dealing with these critical issues relating to collective well-being, you know, the, the climate for being one, you know, the climate change, I think is a, uh, it can be seen as a reflection of the, the way our subconscious and unconscious mind is processing the world right now. We're, we're dealing with generations upon generations of trauma being passed down and being released because the internet has allowed us to unbottle that, some of that stuff and, and work it out with each other, with people we don't even know. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of that is coming to the surface, stuff around, you know, gender equality or inequality um, wealth inequality, racial inequality, ways that we just in our personal lives don't respect each other. And so these, mm, th- th- this healing that we're doing, I think is crucial for the direction we're trying to go as Agreed. a civilization. And, and as we do that healing, we, we break the chain of passing it on. Right. And doing it in public wherever possible to the extent you're comfortable uh, doing it, I feel like that's an attempt at authenticity, right? Yeah. If, if nothing else. Um, yeah. And, and we give other people permission to see that the other people are vulnerable. Like if, if I'm vulnerable in public in some way, or I, I'm honest and uh, let down my guard rather than being attacked, it's likely that I'll inspire a lot of other people to say, oh yeah, I have that same experience in me. And I can also let that guard down. And gradually as we let our guard down, we begin to find solutions to things that we couldn't see before. Sure. And that's what flow is about. It's, it's seeing how when I, when I let go of the attachment I have to my way of solving a problem or dealing with an issue. You crowdsource it kind of. Yeah, you crowdsource it. Yeah. I think crowdsourcing is the most exciting thing going on on the planet right now. And it works best when we are able to let go of our programming and, or heal our programming and, and be vulnerable with each other. In a sense, it's basically accepting help, right? Because yeah. when we are, we are vulnerable, you know, maybe there's going to be a snicker or somebody laughs or it's uncomfortable in the moment. However... It often is the case that there's that one person, right? Or there's right. the couple people that then approach you afterwards right. and share how they've been thinking and how they've been framing something similar. And oftentimes their mental models or their experience help solve your own. Um, so yeah, crowdsourcing is, is fascinating. Well, and I think boldness is something I talk about in the book a lot. And I think boldness is a critical way to uh, generate synchronistic opportunities or what, what I call sometimes gateways mm-hmm. to our next level of, of growth. When we choose to be bold towards something we want in our lives or we want to experience, um, the people from the audience or from wherever we are that, that observe that or are on the other end of that, who there's, there's usually somebody that comes forward and says, 
you know, that was really useful. Can we talk some more? Or that really impacted me and how it changed my life. And this is what I'm doing differently. Uh, or any, any number of variations on that theme. But when we take the chance to be bold about something, we actually do, I think, change the odds of where, where we end up on that tree of possibilities. Completely. And we head towards branches that were quite unlikely before, but have outcomes that are in alignment with our boldness. So I have an example of that. Yeah, I would love to hear. I just was on a book tour on the East Coast in Indianapolis and flew back. And on the plane back, I had brought my ukulele, which I just learned to play. I, I play guitar and I played for a long time, but I just picked up a ukulele. Yeah. It's a lot lighter on the plane, right? It's I bet. Small. <laughs> you travel with it. And, yeah. and you know, there's been these, um, this, this meme going around of uh, like a British Airways had a, a someone singing on a plane, a, a, a choir group. They were traveling across to Australia, I think. And in the middle of the flight, they broke out into one of their, their choir numbers. And so I got on the plane and I talked to the stewardess and I said, you know, I brought my ukulele and I have a couple of songs I could share if you want to. And there's been a couple other instances of this on Facebook. Like my, um, my wife flew home a few, day, few days before me and sent me a video of somebody, one of the stewardesses, singing this groovy song about sit down and buckle your seatbelt and, and pull down your mask and put yours on first. You know, <laughs> she was doing it with this incredible beat and stuff. Yeah. So I got inspired to, you know, check in, to ask the stewardess, like, and say, I'd like to, I'd like to sing a song. So let me know when's a good time. And so she, I, I partnered with her and she sort of helped me figure out the best time. And, and then halfway through the flight, I got up there and I, I started playing a song on the ukulele and started singing and people were like, oh, you're going to serenade us. And some of the people weren't like that, right? Yeah. Some were really excited and some were just sitting there like, I'm just trying to enjoy my flight here. But um, we sang two songs together and I had everyone in the plane was singing together. You know, not everyone on the plane, but in the room, space around me, a lot of people were joining in. It was a collective thing. And, you know, that brought something to everybody, something different to each person there. But it was, it was what I call lighting a spark. You don't know where it's going to lead, but by, by living that way, by taking actions, which step outside the comfort zone in ways that are respectful of others, I think we, we, that's how we generate synchronicities. And that's, I, that's so cool. So let me geek out for a moment about, I have a pretty good idea of what airline you're talking about because they're the only ones that welcome (laughs) and accept that. Right. But how fascinating is it that, I mean, that airline has been very, very innovative in how they think about, uh, servicing their customers mm-hmm. and, and not even as customers, but basically as like a partner, right? Yeah. Because you partnered with that stewardess to put on like an original performance yeah. and there was no bureaucracy. There was no stop. We don't want to have too much fun. Like we don't want to like somebody might be offended or anything like that. It's just like, we're just going to sing a song. That's our style. Like, That's our culture. In the old days, people used to play music. They right. used to sing songs. They right. didn't care what everybody else thought around them. Like that was one of the benefits of being in a group, which right. you get to, they had these group activities. Um, so that's so cool. And I'd be curious to know, what was the rest of the flight like? Well, for me, it was relaxing because I had, well, it was, you know, I, I struggle with feeling included. That's something I dealt with a lot as a kid. Like, I think I, I had a lot of people who wanted to include me, but I personally felt not included. I, I was an only child. Apart. So right there, right really? there with you. And uh-huh. I was racked, <laughs> racked by that yeah. feeling, which I'd been blind to all the, you know, the invitations basically. All, right. It's yes. self-perpetuated. And I, I mean, see this in my daughter too. Like, oh gosh, she's doing what I did and she yeah. did, totally doesn't need to. So there's a sense that really worked for me on this particular circumstance where I really, really felt connected, not only to the stewardess who, who was excited about what I was doing and, and helped me and, and got people interested. Um, but the people there, it felt like we were a collective at that mm-hmm. point. And it wasn't actually a performance as much as a sing-along, you know? And so there's this, there's this way in which for me, my healing is to stop putting up a front and to be more connected mm-hmm. and like, like vulnerable, but in a, in a really practical way. Like yeah. we're just doing something together here. It's not, it's not the sky show or it's not the Chad show or whatever. Yeah. And I think that collectiveness is is part of what we really need in our culture right now to solve the the many faceted issues that we have. And that's what flow is about. In flow, I think the magic of it or the mystery that I still don't understand, but it seems to be the way it works, is that when we make choices out of authenticity, out of being in flow with life, when we listen to circumstances and align with them in such a way that we allow the universe to then align back with us, not only does it bring us what we need personally in some way, if we're open to like, what's our true needs, it might bring us 
um, a sense of belonging. It might bring us a sense of satisfaction. It might bring us a, a new business opportunity. It might bring us a new exercise opportunity. Like it just depends on where we're at. But it also brings us as a collective, it, it solves problems in a way that serves the collective too. And right now, I think we think about problem solving as like, we're going to solve one problem at the exclusion of every other problem on the table. And I think in flow, we begin to solve one problem at the same time we take into consideration all the pieces and we find actually solutions to all of it that nobody, no one person could have thought of themselves. We start to see the ripples, right? Of uh, all the second and third order uh, effects or benefits from this one thing. Where yeah. we, you know, we couldn't have predicted those beforehand, but yeah. sure enough, they start to happen. I didn't get to tell you a few other people that have studied synchronicities. Going historically here, Albertus Magnus was a Catholic saint in the 1200s AD. And he talked about the the nature that of of human beings that strange things like happen in the face of strong emotion. And he tied in the responsiveness of the cosmos that I, that I call it responsiveness to the, the elicitation or the expression of strong feelings. Uh, so that's directly in alignment with the way I see synchronicity and flow happening in the world. And he called it out and saw it, it was more of a divine thing, you know, mm-hmm. part of divinity. And then Carl Jung came along and, and, um, coined the term synchronicity and and talked about it like a uh, psychological concept of where the the universe is reflecting symbolically reflecting the thoughts and the choices and the feelings and the dreams that we're experiencing so the scarab beetle tapping on the window when his patient was had just had a dream about a scarab um, the connection between her inner world and the outer world a reflector. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That reflection, it facilitated a change in her where she felt more connected and saw the purpose in her, in her journey. And then, um, so Carl Jung did a lot to bring it to the forefront. And then since then, there's been a lot of folks studying it who've written books, uh, about synchronicity, like F David Pete, who wrote about synchronicity, the bridge between mind and matter. And, um, Joseph Jaworski wrote a great book on leadership, um, about synchronicity that inspired me to take it in that direction as well. And I think some other philosophers and, and folks that I, who I admire, I think they call it different things, right? A lot yeah. of them want to use their own word or their own reference for it, which I think is fun because words are very fickle and people who approach a certain word with a certain background might not have a certain appeal to synchronicity. Whereas uh, a philosopher like Terrence McKenna, who referred to things like that, as the cosmic giggle, uh, you know, create like a much more lighter entry point for the folks who might be more of on the, uh, the jester, you know, right. jo- joker, uh, side. So, and into yeah. the concept in Judaism of Beshert, okay. which I believe has to do more with like romantic and interpersonal serendipitous connections. Sure. And of course the word serendipity is from a, a book in the 1800s about the three princes of serendip who stumble upon accident after accident that helps them on their journey. And serendipity, I think of as a positive thing. It's like when synchronicities show up in your life to serve, to help you. Mm-hmm. And they, they're obviously helpful. But I think serend- synchronicity is a neutral process. I, I try and explain it with science and uh, the physics behind what I call meaningful select- history selection, where on that apple tree, the, the histories that have the heaviest apples on them, which are the most aligned with what you're intending and acting towards, those branches become heavier and, and become more likely to be selected. Mm. So you end up probabilistically more likely to experience events that are in alignment with your, your intentions or, or especially your actions. And so that process is, uh, I think, scientific and, and not necessarily positive. It's a neutral process. And you come at this from a background of studying quantum mechanics and wanting to get to right, a scientific explanation. So I would be curious, what uh, led you to start your research or was there... A moment or was there a story when you maybe didn't go all in but where you started to get really really serious about this research well i had a story that happened to me before i got really fully invested in this but i i started to go like there's no way that could have happened if it was just random chance i was in college and i took a semester off college to go traveling around europe and my good friend had been uh, dana had been in we'd been in high school together for you know friends since high school really close friends but never dating and in the middle of college, she also took a semester to go to Israel. And we just made this joke, like, let's meet in Greece. That was about the extent of it, right? This is before cell phones were popular. <laughs> and, you know, there's no way that we were going to actually connect, but we, yeah. we intended to. And so about a month and a half into my trip, I still hadn't called her. 
and she couldn't reach me because I was backpacking around Europe. And she was getting a little frustrated waiting for me to call. Uh, but I intended to call her when I got closer to Greece. So I'm traveling down through Italy and I'm in Rome and, you know, I'm, I'm going to call her in a couple of days when I get close to Greece. But I, I realize I've gotten sick and I have to cut my trip short. So I begrudgingly uh, changed my date to fly out of Paris like two, two or three days later and hopped on a train to go up to Paris and fly home to California. And I figured when I got home to California, I'd have a phone. I could call her. I mean, I, I could call from a pay phone in, in Rome, but it would be very expensive. And I was living off like, you know, $5 a day or something. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so I get up to Paris and I go to the Louvre Museum with the one day that I have. The Louvre being, you know, the biggest museum in Paris, one of the biggest in the world. And meanwhile, Dana's gotten sick of waiting for me. She's been telling all her friends about this guy, Sky, who's going to call. And she gets sick of waiting for me. And her friends invited her to go to Paris for the weekend to go uh, to the Fashion Week and have some fun. And she almost said no, but luckily she got on the phone with her mom in California. And her mom's like, honey, forget about Sky. Just go to Paris. <laughs> <laughs> so she hops on a plane and she goes to Paris. And I'm walking through the Louvre Museum and I pass this corner. I'm looking for the Mona Lisa, you know, as everyone is wont to do. And I pass, I turn around this corner and there's this person that looks just like Dana. And I'm just staring at her because it doesn't make any sense. Because Dana's in Israel. And that's, there's no chance that she's here. But her, her friend looks at her, me and looks at her and says, don't look now, but there's this really weird guy staring at you. And I was weird. You know, I was like unshaven from weeks on the road and I was, I was sick. So I had gloves on, you know, <laughs> the heavy jacket, you know. So it was not a, not a pretty sight. I was 20 at the time and it was, you know, just do what you got to do. And so she looks over at me and she says, that's Sky. <laughs> and acknowledges that she knows me. So we spent 24 hours in the airport together talking and she had brought a bunch of letters that she had written to me but couldn't send. I don't know why she brought them to Paris, but she did. She gave them to me to bring home. And it, it was a moment, a pivotal moment in our relationship, not in the moment, like we didn't see it as that in the moment, but in the long run, about five or six years later, we, we reconnected and started uh, dating and, and, and got, got married. Now we have a 10-year-old daughter. Congrats. I love that's yeah, such such a great story. <laughs> so there's this alignment that I've actually calculated it and just shown that even with the most um, lenient of calculations, there's a less than a five percent chance that you can explain that with randomness. Mm -hmm. And and so it's, we just need a better explanation. I don't know that there is one, but we need a better one. And I've worked to develop that better one based on uh, quantum mechanics. Now, let me explain that a little bit because a lot of people try and base a lot of things on quantum mechanics. <laughs> <laughs> but my interest has been in understanding physics at a deeper level. Um, and there's certain holes in the foundations of physics. So one of them is, you know, light travels in a certain way that we call the null interval. It travels from point A to point B. For us, it takes a certain amount of time based on the speed of light. But there's questions around what is what is how does the light register that that travel and we don't have a good way of answering that question it's like einstein's original question of what would happen if you caught up to a light beam has never actually been answered because he what he said was you can't but light travels at that speed and so if you really ask these questions and and think deep more deeply about them there's some holes in our understanding and what i've found is that i can I've wanted to understand some of those holes and come to a deeper, more, more solid foundation for physics and uh, for, for quantum mechanics. And I think that we can actually tie that into the experience of macroscopic mm -hmm. events in the world. And, and that's also a big hole in the theory of quantum mechanics. How do we deal with macroscopic things and why do, how does quantum mechanics apply to things at the everyday level? Or does it? Do you view your work as something that is helping humanize the field of physics or quantum mechanics? Is that a hope or uh, wish you have for the field? Yeah, I like that question. I think that I, I want to do both. I want to further the the rigorous study of these things in ways that are uh, pushing some boundaries, and I want it to be rigorous so that it's it becomes mainstream. And I think that there's an element to which uh, it is humanizing. One of the ways that we've avoided making physics fun or exciting is by saying, well, the cool, fun stuff like quantum mechanics don't apply on the everyday level. But part of that is because we're, we're trying to say, look, quantum mechanics has things like superposition of possibilities, where an electron can be in one possible state or another possible state, and we can't actually distinguish between those two possibilities until we make a measurement. But clearly, you're sitting there, and I'm sitting here. So our common sense tells us that 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 superposition concept can't apply to everyday things like our car or ourselves or 
you know, our, our food or whatever. And so there's, well, there must be this way in which quantum mechanics becomes invalid as we get higher and higher in scale. Um, but that assumption, that, that conclusion is based on our worldview, in, in some sense, taking things at face value, you know? And what I've tried to do through my spiritual training growing up and, you know, my questioning of the, the consciousness, what consciousness is and what is life actually about is trying to peel back some of those, what's hidden underneath the surface of reality, not take everything at face value. So one of the key concepts is that we are constantly perceiving things in the world and interacting with the world. And we assume that the things we're not interacting with are happening anyway. You know, like Einstein asked, do you really think the moon is not there when you don't look at it? The answer is, I think, not that it's not there, but that it is evolving into many different possibilities from your perspective. One of those possibilities is a, is a meteor that hits it. Another possibility is it doesn't. And that those possibilities, when you look at the whole picture, what you find is everyone has their own, essentially, uh, virtual reality. Mm. Uh, it's, 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 I, I use the Matrix as an analogy a lot, the movie The Matrix, or optimistic synchronization in gaming, where the virtual world is rendered for a particular gamer on their box. And it's taking in information from all the other boxes, uh, computers, but those are rendering separately. And they're trying to synchronize. And that's an exact metaphor for how I think the, the cosmos works. You are your computer rendering your world for you, and I'm doing the same thing here for me. And they're not compatible, mm -hmm. but they do have to be consistent with each other. And the optimistic synchronization is this process where the, uh, this protocol where everything has to try and find a way to be consistent. Excuse me for going down the geek rabbit hole here, but when was the first time you saw The Matrix? And were you familiar with Gnosticism before you saw it? What did you think while you were watching it? And what did you think afterwards? Well, one of the things I, I saw it probably after everybody else, I think, maybe 12 years ago, something like that. I don't know when it came out, but I was immediately struck by it. And I don't subscribe to any of the nefarious, you know, overlord type ideas about like, there's this other race of beings that is secretly con con conniving or whatever the word is. Right, right. <laughs> to, yeah. To, you know, I, I think that synchronicity is about empowerment. It's a way in which the cosmos empowers us to create great things in our life. Sure. And when we get caught up in thinking that there's some force out there trying to undermine us. The universe is there to reflect us. Yeah. And in that process, it empowers us. And so it's up to us to, we get to make choices about how we move forward and what kind of mentality and attitude we bring to our actions and how we react to people like when they make us angry or they do something that doesn't go against what we want. Because that happens all the time. Yeah. And so with that, those are the choices we're making and influencing the outcome of synchronistic opportunities that show up in our life as a result. So I really like the matrix specifically because of the ontology or the philosophy that it puts out, which is if you think about how like one of the agents comes into the path of Neo and Morpheus, you know, they're around a corner and there's an agent, you know, all of a sudden. And the question is brought up in the movie, I think, of was that agent there objectively a minute ago? Or is there some program which allowed them to be there based on a decision that Neo made? So the question is whether things out in the world have histories to them, which lead them to a point where they meet you and whether those, those histories are real and objective or whether they're calculated on the fly in order to meet, to match up with the reality that you're experiencing. And that's what I think the, the, the matrix does so well to illuminate. There's this recalculation constantly going on and recalculating the histories of things to allow them to line up in a synchronistic way. And that can be done so long as you haven't already observed that thing because like in optimistic synchronization, if you've already observed something, it's fixed, it's committed, and it can't be changed. So that's where you know, the world is defined and rendered from your point of view. Anything you've observed is fixed and can't be changed. But everything you haven't observed, which is most of the rest of reality, is malleable. actually malleable, flexible to adjust, to respond to your choices in a meaningful way. And outside of the matrix and your work and your new book, Living in Flow, are there any recent studies or scientific papers that you're kind of marveling at right now? Or, uh, and are you writing any too? I would, I would love to yeah, hear what you're working on right now. Yeah. Well, what I'm really writing is uh, finishing up a paper and trying to get it published that puts a lot of these pieces into place academically. And 
that's you know that's a difficult process. It, it takes a lot of revisions, at least for me, <laughs> and feedback and um, deep thinking. And but that's what I love to do. Any other research you're looking at in the space, or researchers that you're you're following closely or collaborating with? So one of the key concepts that we've touched on here today is relationality, which is this idea that quantum mechanics and, and the collapse of a system like an electron into one of the possible states and not the other is not an objective process, but a relative process, relative to you, the one observing it. And so the re- this is called relationality. Relationality is, is about when you measure something, when you interact with something, it takes a definite form relative to you when you get a certain experience, a certain result from that interaction. But somebody on the outside who hasn't observed you or the thing you're measuring would, would actually be interacting with a, a plethora of possibilities, this tree of possibilities. And this is connected to this, this uh, thought experiment called Wigner's friend paradox, where Wigner makes a measurement of, in the lab, but from a friend's pr- perspective outside the lab, both Wigner and the experiment are in a superposition of all the possibilities. This is called relationality, where the, the actual real state of things is relative to the observer. Mm-hmm. I think most people think of quantum collapse as when, when the thing actually takes a definite state in quantum mechanics, when you, you know, there's this weirdness about superposition, but when you interact with something, it takes a definite state and that makes them feel better because then it's definitely in a definite state. Like we expect the world to be, things are actually happening the way, you know, when you drive a car, it goes one direction and not the other at the same time, you know, but relationality says that everything is just constantly entangling at higher and higher levels of complexity. And we're, we're interacting with a world that is in superposition. So one of the things that I'm excited about recently is that there's been a couple of papers that support this perspective experimentally um, that I was actually trying to do research to, to show experiments that could be done to support relationality. And in my process, I ended up uh, coming across a paper that was published this year that does that. And it was a, a method that seems pretty obvious in retrospect, but I couldn't, I couldn't get there on my own. So it's, it's, that's the kind of thing that Uh, I find exciting when I'm trying to do this research. So cool. And you mentioned earlier before we started recording, you're working on a course. So I would love to hear about how you're thinking about teaching these concepts and any information you have about, you know, how you're thinking about the curriculum or what that creation process is like would be great. Yeah. So the, the, what I find is that people want to find ways to get from places in their life where they feel disempowered or stuck. Everyone has some places in their life where they feel disempowered and stuck. Completely. And everyone has some places in their life where they feel totally in flow and in alignment and like things work out where they know how to weather the storm no matter what happens. So one of the things that I do in this course is help you identify the areas where you are already in flow, where you're an expert at flow and bring that mastery to areas of your life where you keep repeating the same problems over and over again and can't figure out why or how to change. And because we are experts already. Mm. We just have to figure out how to expand our expertise to a wider sense of who we are. And then to begin to see right from where you are, where are the next synchronistic gateways? What, what's the next challenge that life is presenting to you that you can, a finish line that you can walk across and get to the next level of, of growth for yourself, the next level of accomplishment. I think that we're always in some phase of development and synchronicity is a process of growth, like synchronicities show up to help us grow, to help us heal something that we're trying to work on inside. Often at pivotal moments where it's, we're approaching a cliff or we're yeah. approaching a moment where it's either change or look at the decision tree in a new way. <laughs> right. And being able to see those opportunities when they're happening, like I was pointing out that synchronicity, it doesn't always appear to be synchronicity in the moment. You have to have a wider perspective. So that's why I talk about listening to life, not just to people, but listening to life's experiences. What's happening in life? What frustrations are showing up in life? How can they, how can I open my mind to them, not blame the world for giving me this crappy situation, but actually open my mind to what is this teaching me? Reflect on it. So I actually have some perspective on, well, how could this benefit me? How can I adapt myself to the circumstance to get something beneficial out of this, maybe even necessary? And then the process of releasing how I thought it was going to go. Sometimes it involves feeling emotions I don't want to feel, like grief, loss. Uh, of my expectations. And then from there, being able to act. And this process, I think, shows up in all parts of life. It's just, um, and and what I I do in the course is help people find 
those meaningful circumstances in their own lives? What's the next thing that's showing up in their life, the next step that they can take to move towards the intention and the, and the hopes and dreams that they have for themselves? Do you find that just having you know, yourself there or that other observer helps bring a new light? I mean, obviously it brings some type of new light and new vantage point to the situation, but I guess my real question is, what type of new light and you know are there any stories you can share when you're working with someone talking with someone or uh yeah any other stories of i don't know if you do coaching clients but what's what's that like when you work with someone i had someone in the workshop uh, recently who had been going through her own transformation dealing with um, breaking out of a pattern in relationships that was unhealthy and, and had pursued her for a long time and um, she found my workshop synchronistically she didn't really know that much about it and it was kind of a long way for her to go, but she, she felt like there was something in there for her. And uh, in her case, being able to see her patterns, um, you know, synchronicities are showing up in order to show us our patterns. It's like the world is sending us reflections of our choices and our path to, so we can see, oh yeah, I'm doing that again. Oh my God, I'm doing that again. Or I, forgot, I, I forgot I was doing that, but here's the proof that, <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. that it was. And I keep doing it and doing it and doing it until it, until I get it. And then I, I, I'm conscious enough to make a change because I've, I've seen it happen so much in my life. And so she was able to get clear on what, how she wanted her relationship situation to be and um, make some different choices. And, and it was transformational for her because she was able to get clarity on what, what the next step was for her. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a give and take process. So, you know, my experience is that I'll make some big, in, I'll have some big insight. I'll actually act differently and be, be in a new space. And then I'll go back to acting the old way, but it's this gradual process of, of opening up. Yeah. Uh, no, I love it. Sky, when you're thinking about the field of quantum mechanics, it's obviously, it's broad, it's deep, it's ever expanding. It's incredibly complex. What are some go-to materials you recommend for people that want to start exploring that themselves? Is there a textbook? Is there uh, an essay that you think is uh, a good high-level overview with you know multiple entry points and rabbit holes for those who are interested? Uh, one of the books that turned me on to quantum mechanics in a way that my education hadn't is The Dancing Wu Li Masters by Gary Zukov. Wu Li is W-U-L-I, The Dancing Wu Li Masters. Um. And in quantum mechanics, in classes in college, I never felt like there was any, I never got anything fun from that. <laughs> I walked away being like, what was that about? But in that book, I started to understand what the real mysteries of quantum mechanics were about. And then I read uh, a book by Banesh Hoffman called The Strange Story of the Quantum, which is a little more technical, but for people who want that, um, it's a great introduction to how, how and why quantum mechanics became a mystery that we're dealing with today. Um, Isaac Asimov has some great, summary books of the history of, of these physics ideas that are, are, you know, they're pretty mainstream, totally mainstream, but um, really, really interesting. Well, the workshop I'm putting together is a video series or the, the course is a video course, video based, and it's uh, at your own pace. So you can take it at, you know, in whatever order you want. But um, some of that is the science behind what I think underlies synchronicity and why they happen. So I try and um, I support what I'm doing in the in the work with the the science that supports it and that's exciting that there are more papers coming out and being published that uh, support this work are there any advancements that we need or i guess evolutions or paradigm shifts in science to help maybe accelerate this work do we need to accelerate it is it happening at the right pace uh are we behind are we ahead where are we at that's an interesting question i think that there's a it's all tied up together the internet has come along and made mutual and self-awareness uh, a really real thing. And I think that there's a way in which mainstream science is limited by its own pers- uh, perspective or principles and needs to expand. And part of the way it expands is by the actual people doing the science having a, a wider breadth of experience. Like for instance, um, Yoga is a science because it is a step-by-step approach to having a consistent set of inner experiences. Now, Western science doesn't really think of inner experience as a, as a valid subject to study, but yogic practitioners have 
have done this for years, they have the same experience after doing the same steps of practice. And that's what science is. It's a methodology. For phenomena that can be repeatedly triggered. And yes. like, yeah, so it should fit the definition perfectly. It just right. happens to be an N of one, which we should stop being so prejudiced <laughs> against ends of one, right? right. <laughs> yeah. You're studying one person yourself. Yeah. So I think that scientists are well advised to have an experience of meditation or inner inner awareness because if you don't have that experience you're going to deny that that experience is valid but it's kind of like saying well i've never studied physics but and i don't think that physics is real if you haven't studied physics how do you know so i think that there's a there's a middle place that i'm trying to bring people to where people who are very comfortable with spiritual experience and don't know science are on one hand and people who are very comfortable with science and haven't really explored an inner world of their own thoughts, their own feelings, their own um, reactions to things, and seeing that objectively. It's like seeing your, your subject of life from an object, objective perspective. Finding a place in the middle where we speak one language that is that we can um, not trigger each other. A lot of times spirituality triggers science you know, in a negative way or vice versa. Um, science can be arrogant, that it's the only way to really know something. Spirituality can be um, uh, a little too aggressive in trying to you know, push its perspective without testing. So I'm looking to find that middle ground where we can actually bring these two together in a way that brings both communities uh, into the conversation in a way that they can accept. I'm all about the middle path. Let's sit here, <laughs> here, here. Uh, Sky, thank you for being generous with your time. This has been a blast. Really enjoyed this. We'll have to get you back in here for round two if you're ever interested. And I think final question for you is what's the best advice or final message that you would leave for our listeners? I think we can learn a lot from our daily life. You can learn from every experience you have. And the question to ask is, how does this experience help me grow as a human and take it to my next level of accomplishment? And how does that actually change the world in the bigger picture? Wise words. Sky, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, Chad. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.